This is episode 58. I'm here with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, and we're going to discuss specifically his book, a, a thick tome uh, called Faith Comes from What It Is Heard, an introduction to fundamental theology. So, Larry, great to have you here again. Uh -huh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. <laughs> and um, why don't you just tell me in your own words uh, the inspiration behind this book and then I'll react a little bit and say um, why I'm recommending it. I have personal reasons. Um, okay. Once it's immensely readable and it's just I think a great introduction to the subject but just tell me your thinking behind this. Why you feel why you felt it needed to be written. Okay so it's a, a course I teach theology in a seminary. Yep. Kenrick uh, Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. Yep. And this is one of my courses, Fundamental Theology. Right. And Fundamental Theology is um, an invest the theology of the foundations of theology. In other words, it's Fundamental Theology is theology looking at itself and right. seeking it to explore and reflect on its own foundations. And that would be God's revelation, first mm. and foremost. Faith by which we receive it. Um, Tradition and scripture by which it's transmitted. Right, so that's kind of the, the fundamental subjects. And then in the middle of that, looking at what is the nature of theology and how does it work? Right, so that's kind of what fundamental theology is. Right. And half of the book focuses on scripture. So the yes. second half is an introduction to scripture. Yeah, so it's, it's that which, which is great. And it strikes me that, it, that um, anyone who wants to who has original thoughts in this area um it, it would be that alone would be it would make this worth reading because it, it sets out the parameters that guide our thinking in a sense if we have ideas and because one of the things that struck was a, a, um, interesting for me um was that theology isn't a fully established subject it's like any other it's developing thinking is mm -hmm. And this is the roadmap for legitimate thinking, in a way. And like all, uh, it's not restrictive. It's like um, all of these things. It just, uh, it, there's still an infinite field available. It just sets out the no-go areas very right. clearly. Um, right. And, and the go areas. And the go ways. areas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I, I've I taught this class. Go on, yeah. Okay. So I've taught the class about yeah. um, since 2012. And okay. so I taught it five years before writing the book. All but right. the book grew out of teaching the class. And what, what is different about this from other textbooks that might have been available? What, what, what... Right. So there used to be a tradition of writing manuals for seminarians. And these were the famous pre-Vatican II manuals yes. that very often in recent years have gotten a very bad rap. Yeah. People tend to look at them as dry um, neo-Thomistic or neo-scholastic manuals, but yes. they served a very important purpose. And the purpose was to um, give to students the fact, you know, what is the, the most fundamental things in each part of theology yes. and to bring it up to date. Right. And so um, you could find manuals from the 16th century, the 17th, 18th, 19th, and in each case, you would include um, response to the problems of our own day, okay. right, of, of each. And so after the Second Vatican Council, there was a reaction to the manuals, and yeah. people stopped writing them. And, but there was much greater need, actually, for new manuals, because now one had to incorporate the Second Vatican Council and the post-conciliar magisterium and um, thinkers like Joseph Ratzinger and St. John Henry Newman. And, and to, so my goal was to make a kind of synthesis, a theological synthesis that would be profoundly Thomistic, like those earlier manuals, but would be um, take um, a central um, focus on Vatican II post-conciliar magisterium and looking at people like Newman and Ratzinger. Uh, right. who are huge in fundamental theology. 
yeah, so, that, that's what comes through. And through those people, um, because it was their interest, those, those more recent figures, mm -hmm. they direct us back then to pre-Thomas right. times, mm -hmm. to the church fathers. Mm -hmm. And so I just get the, the sense of um, all of this is being drawn together into a, a synthesis, which is a continuation of the tradition. With this little hiatus after the mm -hmm. after the council, but one that reinforces the um, how traditional the, the council is, mm -hmm. which is is, is just great. Um, so I, I, there are certain themes that uh, appeal to me, and so okay. I'm going to ask you about those yeah. particularly. Okay. But I want you to to bring out anything that you think is important okay. as well. So don't feel we have to be restricted to this. One is just the definition of faith, which okay. I'm, ash I'm ashamed to say I didn't know. I, I, I thought I knew about it, but mm -hmm. it's this idea that it is, um, it's basically an argument from authority. It's saying, I believe mm -hmm. it based upon what somebody tells me. And that's why that's the, the title is there. Faith mm -hmm. comes from what is heard. Um, but supernatural faith um, is faith based upon the authority of God. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, therefore, it is it is more certain. Uh, you know, the authority mm -hmm. can be trusted. Right. Yeah. Um, so, can I say something about that? Absolutely. So, yeah, at the beginning, of, yeah, yeah. So, at, um, I entered the church thirty years ago, nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. And um, a key figure in our becoming Catholic was reading Saint John Henry Newman, just yes. recently canonized, and um, in particular. And what struck me reading his Apologia Pro Vita Sui, his autobiography, was the way he talked about faith. And so he speaks there about what he calls the dogmatic principle. And by that, he means the fact God has spoken in human history, right? And, and faith, um, the glory of faith, is precisely adhering to that in a kind of self surrender. And he contrasts that with what he calls liberalism and religion, um, which would um, um, not view the dogmatic principle. In other words, we very often speak about, ah, you're being dogmatic, as if it, it's a negative term, dogmatic. Mm. And so what I found in Newman was this positive sense of yeah. the dogmatic principle, and incredibly positive. In other words, that's what liberates the human mind so that we can elevate our mind to share in God's mind. Yes. Um, the thing that, that struck me about that is that this mm -hmm. is not an argument to persuade people who don't believe that they ought to, because right. it, it, because it's not going to, it might be, but it's not going to have any effect because right. it, it, for them, it's a circular argument. It, the, mm -hmm. um, but what it does do is for those who do believe, it gives me greater certainty and mm -hmm. conviction mm -hmm. it increases my faith it's a positive mm -hmm. feedback process and so in that sense that that was how i viewed it as useful i don't know whether that makes sense mm -hmm. to you yeah. yeah and so i think it has to go together so i have a, a chapter on faith in the book yeah and where we speak precisely faith as our adhering to god's word because he's the truth right because he can't deceive or be deceived. And that's the First Vatican Council, what it says about faith. Yes. But the, then the next question is, how do we know where God has spoken? And so that we need, an, so there's another chapter on that, motives of credibility, mm. which are the reasons why we think God has in fact spoken and spoken in Israel and through the prophets, through Jesus Christ and his church. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a cold, everyone. Mm. Um, so uh, the point I want to make is this could be a very dry subject, the, the nature of faith. Mm -hmm. But I, I just want to make you blush here and say that it is really beautifully written. It is readable, accessible. You seem to, your approach appears to be to assume reasonable intelligence but not you, you you start at first principles very often so mm -hmm. 
it, you don't need to have a lot of prior knowledge. And right. as such, it's just a great uh, book for someone who wants to know more about our faith, I would say. It, it is uh, the, the, the church and where, where our faith comes from. So it, it is thick and, you know, it needs a little bit of effort, but um, it is extremely readable and I found it fascinating. And so I think that this could be a popular book as well. It's just, it's not just a, a textbook mm -hmm. for seminarians, right. really. Right, yeah, it's meant for the, the educated layperson or the wanting to be educated layperson. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. Excellent. Okay, so um, now... You then talk about the uh, tradition and the magisterium and, and the, the define these very clearly and the place of scripture within them. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit um, uh, because it, it, I never really understood how you could have tradition that wasn't written. Um, how do you, if it's not written, where do you get it from? <laughs> how is it passed on? And I just thought your reflections on the power, first of all, the, of the, um, the, the words of the liturgy, which is part of tradition, mm -hmm. also oral tradition and the different perspective mm -hmm. we have today on that and the, the influence that has on the way then you look at the, the written versions of this, which mm -hmm. come afterwards, which is scripture right. and the interpretation of scripture. So could, could you perhaps talk a little bit about okay. that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the everything starts with God who reveals. Right? So that's we could say that's kind of the that's the first wonder of theology that mm. God wants to speak, but yeah. He doesn't reveal Himself by writing something down. Right? He reveals Himself to persons. He reveals Himself in an interpersonal way and yeah. in a social way to a people. Right? And so that's why Israel is always the starting point. Right? God reveals yeah. Himself through Abraham, but through the whole, the children of Abraham. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then in that revelation, God um, illuminates the mind of the person to whom he's revealing himself, right? But um, again, so that the prophet can communicate that orally, socially, right? And so tradition is, precisely the passing on of God's revelation in a people on, right, by those who have received it and those, um, whether directly from God or much more likely from the, the people itself, right? And so tradition is the vehicle. So we're taking tradition here in a broad sense, mm. tradition with a capital T, as the passing on of God's revelation. Yes. And that's always first going to be oral. Yes. And then, and it's also going to be liturgical because God's revelation molds worship, right? And so we can, we don't have the details of Israel's ancient worship. We have her more modern worship, but um, that revelation immediately went into worship. Um, and yes, maybe something got written down by Moses, but again, so much more passed on orally. And we tend to think um, that oral, tr oral traditions kind of get lost, right? It's, we tend to think of the telephone game where, that you might yeah. play at a party yeah, yeah. where something gets passed on. And we totally forget, or, or that's, that's based on our culture, not on their culture. Mm. The telephone game, first of all, it's something unimportant that gets passed around. And it's passed around by people who have no, um, who are from a society that's inundated with texts. But God spoke to mankind in societies that were oral, oral cultures, who, in which writing was very rare. And in an oral culture, there are techniques of passing on uh, oral texts, especially passing them on liturgically and, and poetically. Right? So, so much of the Old Testament is in fact verse. Right? Obviously, the Psalms are, but even much of the prophets are in a kind of verse. And, um, and so um, texts get, in an oral culture, you don't have 10 billion texts. You have one fundamental text. And it, it's the life of the people, and it's also the, 
the worship of the people. Mm. And, and so in any case, so in that sense, tradition comes before scripture and it gets written down later. But that too serves now a key purpose because that it gets written down through, the, through God's inspiration. So it gets written down in a way in which God himself takes the authorship of the text and then it fixes it for future generations. Mm. So the, the writing down of tradition in scriptures is a crucial part of God's transmitting that revelation, even if it's not the first part. And you talk about our mistrust of so, oral, oral tradition today, but I, I'm thinking right. that um, there is uh, this conflict exists, even sort of politically, that there is, you know, those who are more conservatively minded, for example, politically, I, I mean, are more inclined mm -hmm. to believe that there is a, a sort of dispersed knowledge that exists between people and present in a society. Um, and it tends to be focused on the, the market value or, and these sort of things, price mechanisms is where you see it discussed. But this idea of a, it, it is expressed in emergence orders, for example, the idea that there is in a society um, aspects of knowledge which might not even be held by any one person, but nevertheless are there. And there is this mechanism of communication. And we tend to, dis the desire is to try and capture that and centralize it. Uh, and it's, it's an impossible task for the most part. And I think it speaks to probably the, the divine inspiration <laughs> that it was even possible when they wrote scripture down that, that to, to do that accurately and well would probably have been immensely difficult um, if it wasn't for the, the fact that God's inspiration was there mm -hmm. in that recording process. And one imagines also, um, perhaps not in precisely the same way, in translation processes that the... Mm -hmm. The, the, the guiding hand is there at, at various junctures when uh, yeah, it's Latin. Uh, it, it, it doesn't automatically mean that you're watering down the truth, that, mm -hmm. that, that it can be a guided um, preservation um, mm -hmm. of truth, or even because languages express things in different ways, bring new light onto something um, that isn't apparent before, perhaps. Mm -hmm even um and it it displays that in itself is is a faith of sort it, it needs a trust should we say in human nature and god's hand uh, mm -hmm. i think to do yeah, that right um, so, yes it, so it seems that these two things scripture and tradition absolutely require one another right yes. so and here's where i think protestants tend to to miss um the obviously they focus on scripture, but they tend to miss some of the dimensions of tradition. Yeah, yeah. And so we want to say that tradition um, precedes the writing down and it accompanies it all throughout, which is interesting. So, so scripture gets written down in, um, in the context of a living tradition, obviously God inspiring it so that it's being written down under as he wanted it, and exactly as he wanted it, but yeah. still um, it requires the interpretation, the key of interpretation that's in the oral um, tradition. Mm. And so oral tradition precedes, um, accompanies, and follows, and, um, and you always need both, right? And they serve different... Yes, because otherwise the interpretations can vary so wildly. And right. Uh, this is the thing that really struck me and I loved about what you you then start to talk about the the traditions of interpretation and maybe we can just talk mm -hmm. a little bit which I, I just thought was great I was excited to read this was the um, your arguments about the order in which the uh, the Gospels were written um, and so I'd always heard Mark first and um, and you say, well, no, the, the, the tradition is the order in which they appear, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm -hmm. And then you give arguments that take into account 
recent developments and, and, and historic, you know, the, the way that history is analyzed. Uh, um, mm -hmm. So you take that into account. You don't just regard, disregard it. You just, um, you deal with it uh, in, a, in a realistic way, I think. So mm -hmm. perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about that and how you, you come to that uh, argument that um, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the order. Yeah, yeah that's okay. terrific stuff. Right, so that's, well, let me just put a disclaimer. So that's, um, uh, that's not the key point in the book, right? Yeah. But um, the, I would say that the important point there is that we want to, um, there's a beautiful harmony yeah. between the patristic understanding of the, let's take the four gospels. Yeah and how they come out of um, that apostolic tradition and what modern historical studies recently have shown and yeah. very often by non-Catholics. So by Lutherans, Norwegian school and Scandinavian school. Okay. And um, what, they've, what many scholars have looked into recently is rediscovering what an oral, how an oral tradition functions in a traditional society. Right. and how reliable it is, and then in particular in Jewish society, right? So Jewish culture um, at the time of Jesus was very much an oral culture. And you can see this in all kinds of ways. Even So Jews today, Orthodox and the, uh, Jewish theologians, speak of two Torahs, the written Torah and the oral Torah, right? And so the oral Torah, in some sense, um, being no less important than the written Torah. And being the key of interpretation, yeah. and um, so that would be one aspect. Um, and they would the oral Torah had to be memorized. You, it finally got written down. It's what we today call the Mishnah and the Talmud. But up until the third century A.D., a couple of centuries after Christ, it had to be memorized. So you memorized the um, the oral tradition, and you passed it on orally. And it was actually forbidden to write it down because it was thought that it should be passed on orally because that there's something, um, the fact that you have the two, the written Torah and the oral Torah, each one is doing something different. The written Torah is fixed under God's inspiration, but the oral Torah allows interpersonal communication and therefore a development. Right? So that's how you get the development of doctrine and the development of interpretation by which what God revealed from the beginning gets fleshed out more and more over time. And uh, back to your question about the four gospels. Yeah. And so the fathers of the church had, um, simply saw the order of the four gospels in, as Matthew first. And that was seen, I think, by them simply as something that they had received um, historically. And so our earliest writer is Papias in the early second century. And you see, we don't have his work, but he wrote a work on the scriptures. And uh, we have just fragments in Eusebius. And he's the one who speaks of um, Matthew um, having written in the language of the Jewish people. So we don't even know whether that was Aramaic or Hebrew. Um, but be that as it may, um, it makes sense that there was a first evangelization in, to the Jews before Paul's missionary voyages and the thrust of evangelization became to the Gentiles. And it makes sense that Matthew's gospel reflects that because he's always interested in right, showing how the prophecies are being fulfilled. Um, it's, if you just simply, the language is full of um, Arab uh, Hebrewisms. In other words, um, it reflects most closely the oral style. Mm. Um, and just take an example. Um, so in the book, I, I briefly mentioned the Sermon on the Mount is maybe where you see it the most clearly. Jesus teaches in a way that's apt to be remembered because he, he um, part of the oral style is you repeat things. So it's parallelism. You never say something once. You always say it twice at least, right? So you say it and then you say it again a different way. But maybe you say it eight different ways, right? And that would be, say, the Beatitudes. So you get the same structure blessed are right, the poor in spirit and then there's a reward there's the kingdom of heaven so you go through eight variations on that i'd say that's just an example of the oral style which 
which makes it easy to remember something. Or Matthew 25, where he speaks about the last judgment and he goes through the works, seven works of mercy, right? I was naked and you fed me, and you clothed me, etc. And he goes through it four times, two times for the, those who didn't feed him and clothe him and visit him, etc. And two times for those who didn't. That's another example of a way of preaching that would make it possible for a text to be transmitted orally, to be remembered. And, and, and so that's the kind of, that's the context in which the gospels come about. And Matthew's gospel shows that the most clearly, right? That original preaching of the gospel to the Jews. So that's why I, th I think historic research just reinforces the correctness of what the fathers of the church say on the basis of what for them was historical information about who wrote first. Mm. But it is a revision of um, what uh, was believed, say, from the 19th century through for about 100 years or something. Right, Mark because they're really the posing in the, ninth, in the um, beginning of the 20th century or late 19th the synoptic problem began to be posed. What's the literary relationship between the first three Gospels? Yes. And to my mind, the problem was posed, I think, incorrectly, I think, because it was presupposing a culture like ours, yes. a culture of texts, in which maybe in composing, so when I write my book, I look at other books, and I might copy passages from them and so forth, and I look at my own past works, and I cut and paste on the computer and put together a text like that. Yeah. But in an oral culture, that's not how you work. In an oral culture, texts are memorized, and they're memorized by the whole community in some sense. And thus, you don't have the same... Um, it seems to me that um, it's not simply a matter of um, taking a text and cutting and pasting um, a literary relationship, but it's, it's more complex because it's an oral um, culture and... Um, and I, yeah, sometimes the way the problem is posed doesn't take that into account. That's yeah. one thing. Then there's a second thing. We tend to presuppose that the simplest has to come first. Um, and so Mark's gospel being simpler, say, than St. Matthew, obviously, Luke and John, likewise, um, would seem to us should be the first one. Um, but that's not necessarily the way it actually worked in history, right? That you would it doesn't necessarily follow that the first proclamation of the gospel to the Jewish people should be simpler. And so the, the traditional view about Mark's gospel is that it reflects Peter's preaching in Rome right, to, to Gentile Christians. And so it makes sense that Peter in that context would simplify, right? He wouldn't give as many um, fulfillments. He wouldn't give yes. the full sermon on the Mount and things like that. Yeah. Right. Great. Now, the, the other so, thing. So, oh, um, sorry. Yeah. Our kind of Darwinian evolution from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. necessarily hold, right? That the originality is going to come from Jesus, not from the evangelists. Yes. Yeah, yeah great. Um, the other thing is that the thing that I find fascinating and I'd read this elsewhere, is that the idea that the, the, the Bible, which we often see and think of being separate from the liturgy, that they're two different mm -hmm. things, and mm -hmm. maybe you get the scripture readings in the liturgy, but um, you talk about this idea that, first of all, um, originally, it, the, whole th the books that form the canon are effectively those that were proclaimed within the liturgy. Right. So, so initially, um, they uh, presumably the whole of that Bible, the Bible we have now, mm -hmm. was heard in the context of the liturgy. Exactly. And and furthermore, it was written to be proclaimed. So right. it, so it wasn't written to be read silently. It was actually written to be in a style that would transmit itself to be heard. And exactly the uh, oral style. Yeah. So it's, it's the same. So it's it's written with uh, yeah as with the oral transmission in mind, even though it's a text. Right. Um, first of all, I found that fascinating. What what I'm going to say is that I um, 
pray the Psalms daily. And what I, so what, in order to, when I heard this, I thought, right, what I'm going to do is in my morning and evening prayer, I just do Old Testament in the morning. I just run, you know, I do a, a chapter or something a day. Uh-huh. And then in the evening, I do New Testament, um, the Gospels, and then the epistles, if you like. Uh-huh. And the idea being that in a sort of quasi-liturgical context, if I can call it that, I'm exposing myself to the to Scripture. Um, and I, I just thought, I just thought, well, I'd like to see whether it transmits itself to me. And I, I actually sort of, on my own in my room, I actually chant it very faintly, just just to see uh-huh. whether it, it embeds itself more. But it's actually motivating me for the first time to read through it systematically. It gives uh-huh. me a schema by which to do it. But th- that's, well, that's what, go on. Right. That, that's precisely the idea of the liturgy of the hours, right? The, yeah. the divine office is, I mean, has precisely that intention of giving us the whole of this um, text, but liturgically, right? So we read the Psalms, yeah. focus above all on the Psalms, but with Old Testament readings with the, um, so if we combine the divine office and the mass scripture that is precisely yeah um liturgical and that's i think the bit so when people ask me um what what could be a good program for reading scripture i think that that's the actually the best answer is to start with the daily mass readings and then to add in the readings from the liturgy of the hours um great so um that's one aspect of the Bible being liturgical, but yeah. another can I, is the. Can I, can I throw on, something? Yeah, carry on. So when the Council of Trent defines the canon, yeah, right, it's really interesting that the criterion that Trent uses is precisely the books um, contained in the Vulgate. Why the Vulgate? Because that's what's been proclaimed in the liturgy in the Latin Rite for fifteen centuries. So it's. It gives a liturgical can- canon in effect, right. and that was our earliest lists um, in this from the Muratorian uh, fragments oh. and by Saint Augustine and North African councils lists as well. So it shows us that the church comes to a consciousness of the canon of Scripture precisely through what is proclaimed as the Word of God in all the churches. Right. And again, it's this, it's this recognition of the power of, of sort of oral transmission um, mm-hmm. across a community and just drawing in the, uh, drawing a truth out of this, which is very powerful, I, I think. Um, also, we can say, can't we, that um, in many ways, the structure of the liturgy in itself is contained within the Bible. Um, in, in many ways, reference to the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking also just within the Psalms, seven mm-hmm. times a day, I'll praise you, I'll rise at midnight. Um, mm-hmm. So that sets the pattern of seven plus one, right. which is right. so so common as a thread running through the rhythms of the liturgy. Excellent. Right. Okay. So finally, um, you list... Uh, the um, ways in which we analyze, if I can use that word, the, mm-hmm. the text itself. So mm-hmm. the, the, a more conventional approach, you might say, the one we think of more regularly. Um, so you talk of, I think it's four, three, um, the analogical, anagogical. Perhaps you could just list okay. those for those. I can't bring them to mind. Four senses of scripture? Yeah, yeah. Talk about that, and then we'll get on to origin and the the dangers okay. that, that he posed while giving us so much as well. Okay, and so the fathers of the church in reading scripture spoke about scripture as having more than one sense, right? And so the most important figure in this development is origin, but he's not the only one, right? So origin speaks of um, a literal sense, and. Um, and then he speaks of a, um, the two other senses, um, which he equates with the soul and the spirit. Um, so we're composed of body, soul, and spirit. And so scripture likewise has a kind of body, that would be the literal sense, 
and um, spiritual senses as well that he divides in two and later authors divide in three. And so you get four senses altogether, the literal and three spiritual senses. Now this can be complicated, but the, it's, in, I was, it's somewhat amazing. So much of the modern exegesis dispenses with that altogether. Historical right. critical exegesis has, is basically focused only on the literal sense of scripture, yeah. which is the, the first task, but you don't want to stop there. Yeah. And, but the catechism of the Catholic Church has a beautiful section on the four senses of scripture. So it's number 117 of the catechism, paragraph 117 that goes through it. And the key, what the catechism does in understanding this is following the interpretation of St. Thomas Aquinas, which I think is the best way to understand this. And so St. Thomas divides the, spirit, the senses of scripture in a, in, with a first division. And every, all of scripture is composed of words. And those words mean something according to the intention of the author, which in this case is human, the human author of that part of scripture, and divine, um, God, who is the primary author of scripture. So the first task of exegesis is understanding the words according to the intention of the author. And we call that the literal sense of scripture. But the term itself is a bit misleading because when we hear literal, we think, taking it too literally. In other words, we think something negative, but that's not the, the meaning of the term. The literal sense means understanding the words according to the intention of the author, and therefore understanding the metaphors, the um, literary genre, the, the meaning that the author wants to communicate through those words rightly understood. Yeah. Right, so that's obviously, that's the first task of exegesis. And so we would agree with the people who do the historical critical method, that yes, that's gonna be the first task. And in order to do that, you have to look at um, the ancient languages in which they were written. You have to look at the literary genres that they used at that time and to understand the metaphors and the history, the historical context. So all of that is kind of what modern exegesis focuses on and that's indispensable. But it doesn't stop there because those words describe realities that are part of God's plan. And in God's plan, not only the words of scripture, but the realities or events of history that are described by the words are also signs of what God wants to communicate, signs of other salvific realities. And so we call this today, above all, typology. Mm. Biblical typology comes from the fact that scripture through its words describes events and those events themselves have a providential meaning in which those events or realities can point to other realities. Um, so the easiest example would be events in the Old Testament, like the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus, but also the creation account that point forward to future events above all in Christ. And so the crossing of the Red Sea and the exit liberation from Egypt is a type, that's the technical word there, a figure or sign of a greater liberation, liberation from sin and death that Christ works for us in his Paschal mystery and gets applied to us through the sacraments like baptism. So the crossing of the Red Sea and the Exodus can be a type, a sign or figure of Christ's Paschal mystery Mm -hmm. but also of baptism by which we participate in that liberation, not from Egypt, not from Pharaoh, but from sin and death. Right. And so the way, kind of the classic way this is worked out is in the liturgy of baptism. So um, the Easter vigil, traditionally the time in which adults are baptized in the church, and the um, Easter vigil liturgy gives us precisely that reading of the crossing of the Red Sea to prepare for the baptism that will take place after those readings. And the idea and the, the fathers of the church explain it one after the other. So many of the fathers explain this. And the idea would be that the Israelites enter in the water and being pursued by Pharaoh, right? They cross through the waters, parted waters, 
and being pursued, but when they get to the other side of the waters, those who pursued them, Pharaoh and his chariots, get washed away by the waters that resume their course, right? So Moses, at the end, he strikes the river again with his rod, the waters return and sweep away Pharaoh and his chariots. And we should take that as not just as a history, first of all, that's the history of the Jewish people, but also, and so first we want to take it in its literal sense as something that happened in Israel's history, but happened in order to prefigure another event, Christian baptism. Right? So all those who enter the baptismal font at the Easter Vigil, something similar happens. They enter pursued, pursued by Satan and the weight of our past sins, original and personal. Yeah. And the waters of baptism wipe away those who pursue such that they can never follow, uh, such that they, they don't return. But what happens? The Israelites don't immediately get to Israel, right? They, they have to first wander in the desert for 40 years mm. and be tempted and murmur, and grumble, etc. And that, that also is a type. Baptism doesn't immediately take us into heaven, right? But it, we pass through the waters of baptism into the Christian life in which we're tempted and we wander in the desert for the 40 years of adult life, as it were. Mm. And this, I, I think... The, yeah, the allegorical sense. Yeah. Of scripture, by and, which events of the Old Covenant prefigure Christ and the sacraments and the church. Right. And I'm just going to come in there. I know we've got the other two uh, forms of typology, but as I speak, this immediately speaks to the, to the value of art, I think, mm -hmm. in that um, art is, it's, it's funny how people tend to look at art of the past as being something that is an alternative way of transmitting text for the illiterate. It might have been that, I've heard references, but I think it's actually so much more than that, simply because it, it, that um, view reveals all the faults that you've listed. It assumes that there's no oral transmission. Mm -hmm. People can talk to each other and they can learn that way. So not everybody had to be able to read. Um, and then the second thing is that the, the, a special, the special value of art in... Um, in this is connecting things together visually in a way that they wouldn't in a text which which um it runs um from you know from one fact to the other so for example in a baptistry you could have these scenes placed in such a way that you connect them together visually and then when you hear the reading you, you see um the uh, passage across the red sea you hear that you see it visually and then see it placed next to the baptism in the Jordan. And then you have the font in front of you and you're going to make these connections in your mind. Um, and uh, this speaks also, I think, to the, um, the, the reason why liturgical art needs to be something more than simply just an alternative presentation. What it does, it speaks to us in a particular way, provided we're trained to look or the art is skillfully placed so that we naturally see at certain junctures what um, we're seeing in the context of the liturgy, what it, is, um, what it is telling us about the spiritual life or um, its meaning in a deeper way. Um, and and I, 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 just as you were talking about how um, we seem to have forgotten um, this aspect of uh, the uh, understanding scripture mm -hmm. and also um, the fact that um, oral uh, transmission can be immensely powerful. I think it's interesting that because we are such a text-based society that we actually don't understand the value of art either. Yeah, I think um, that's an excellent point. Um, so the, um, the illiterate say christians of the you know the patristic age or the middle ages yeah. you know through the renaissance they would have had a far better understanding of scripture in its totality and unity so um the historic critical method tends to focus in on yeah. the particular text alone yeah 
And so it was analysis. And, an, and so the danger so often is that you miss the unity of scriptures. Mm. And so there had to be a new kind of technique called canonical criticism introduced by which you would read a particular text in the light of the other books of the canon. But Christians from the patristic age and the middle ages and the Renaissance would have done this naturally because um, you would, just as you said, going into a baptistry, you would see salvation history as yeah. a whole. I yeah. mean, this is the most glorious thing of the Gothic cathedrals. Yeah. Every Gothic cathedral gives you the whole of salvation history. And what's so beautiful is very often the light, the very light enters in to the building through the salvation history that are in the stained glass windows. Yes. And so there would have been a vision of the whole. And I think this is what we so much lack. And let me just say one more thing about that. That the reason there can be a salvation, salvation history presupposes that God has a plan that is to us, um, we can't grasp. Um, he has a plan in which he sees the whole, and yet all the parts are freely done. Mm. So, each, so with free will, each of us can resist his plan or not, but he still has a plan of the whole that is a plan entirely made up of free actions in salvation history, but yet such that he composes in our freedom. And therefore, he can so compose in such a way that it's like a novel, right? So in a novel, um, an, a novelist might put something in the beginning to foreshadow something towards the end. He can do that because he's composing the whole. Yes. God, as the author of history, does something similar. But the amazing thing is with our free will and with the events of, of sacred history, right? And so that marvel is what gets communicated when you see salvation history as a kind of whole. Mm. And we moderns are bad at that, right? Because we're analytic. We take it all apart and we analyze it and we don't put it together again, yeah. generally. And that's what the earlier Christians, who very often were illiterate, would have done so much better than us. Mm. So often, so I talk about typology a lot in, in um, when I give, say, talks in a parish or other kinds of faith formation talks, RCIA. And generally the response I get is, how come we weren't told this before? Wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. I never heard this before. And any Christian from the year 400 or 500 or 600 would know this inside out because they would have seen it, just as you said. And it also, just in the context of the wider culture, it explains why beauty is no longer valued because um, in order to appreciate beauty, you have to see the parts, but then take a step back and view the whole. Mm -hmm. And then see the whole in the context of what its right. purpose is, the, 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 the wider, wider picture, mm -hmm. so to speak. Everything has to be interconnected. And mm -hmm. if we can't think like that naturally, if everything is about focusing on a smaller and smaller part, mm -hmm. and we don't have that capacity for um, creation and recognition of beauty in the same way. Um, but, so this is, again, very important. All these things are, are interconnected. Okay, let's go on. Yep, yep. So even, all right, so you find this most in a Gothic cathedral, but I live in St. Louis, and we have a beautiful cathedral in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And in our cathedral, there's tons of typology. So if you look up at the, at the um, sanctuary, on the one side, there's the sacrifice of Isaac. Mm -hmm. And it'll, it, Jesus being raised up on the cross on the other side. On the one side, the, um, the Exodus Passover meal, and on the other side, the Last Supper. And so there is a lot of parallelism in our own 20th century churches in America yeah. of typology. But again, so often the public doesn't see it. Yeah. I'm going to give you, an, a, a, just as an aside, after listening, we, we discussed this a little bit in the nature of harmony and proportion mm -hmm. in, in our last podcast. And a friend of mine who also teaches for Pontifex, and he might well be listening to this now, actually, Dr. Michel Akkad, um, he goes to my church, um, and he's, he is a, a, a physician, a medical doctor, uh -huh. and he is um, concerned that the, the modern approach to medicine is very difficult, different from the traditional. Um, and he says, for example, there is no definition of health. Mm. Um, it's only a negative. 
Um, and, and so he's trying to think, think, well, what is health? And he was listening to our last podcast. And he said, that isn't it the um, harmonious arrangement of the parts in such a way that it allows the person to fulfill his or her purpose in life? And yeah. so that can then accommodate what you might call handicaps or um, certain aspects being less than perfect. You know, if, I, if I lose an arm, mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't say I'm unhealthy. Um, I can still be healthy because mm -hmm. I can accommodate that in other ways that allow me nevertheless to fulfill my mm -hmm. purpose in God's plan for, for me mm -hmm. as a human being. Um, whereas there's no way of accommodating that in the modern view of the human person. And, and he will talk about this in the context of the training that doctors get, the, the way in which medicine is provided is impaired because there is no view of health and of what health is. It's not even taught in medical schools, apparently. Right, right. Uh, so that's gotta be the first thing. Right? Yes. And, that's, and that's what faith proposes, right? The yes. Baltimore Catechism, the very first question, why did God make me? Yeah. The same thing is true of our current catechism. The first paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church gives God's plan as a whole. I think it's, it's marvelous that that very first paragraph of the catechism in some way um, summarizes the whole of our, what we're for. Yes. A plan in Christ to be united with, in God's own beatitude and share in his life. Um, and, and so for all our, it, it's, this is so interesting, for all our medical advances, the reason there is a sense that the provision of medicine is in crisis, the way that hospitals are organized, mm -hmm. healthcare is, in, is mm -hmm. organized, the, the fracture emanates from this lack of that first principle that yeah. you just described, that right. is coherent with all that is true. Right. You want to start with a, a, a foundational assertion that is in accord with the rest of medicine and the rest of all that is. Mm -hmm. And medicine at the moment lacks that. That's what yeah. uh, Dr. So that, that could be a good way of getting at the other two spiritual senses. Go on. Yeah, we can bring us back so, to point. Yeah, very good. So <laughs> precisely because um, um, Christ, yes, Christ is the center, but Christ has a work. And that work is to bring us to our final end. Yes. What we're for, and that is the life of heaven. We say that there's another spiritual sense by which events in salvation history point not just to Christ in his incarnation, mm. but to Christ in glory and the life of heaven. And so that's called, with this, sorry, Greek word, anagogical sense. We might say better eschatological mm. sense, or a sense in which things that happen in salvation history are pointing to the last things. So mm. we speak of four last things, heaven, hell, death and judgment, right? So death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And so that's a, we find that um, in various places in scripture. And then there's another spiritual sense, um, maybe the most important of all in some, some way, and that's the moral sense. And that's by which events in salvation history point us to the Christian life and how we ought to live so as to get to our final end. And so Christ, the New Testament, um, so the Old Testament is the, what has the first kind of spiritual sense we mm. talked about, the allegorical sense pointing to Christ. But the New Testament also has spiritual senses, these other two. So everything that Christ does in the Gospels is revealing to us what we're called to, heaven, but also what we're called to now, right, the Christian life. Mm. And so Christ is the model of our life today as well as what we're called to. Yeah. Right? And so that's also, that too can be portrayed in art, right? So the yeah. life of Christ in art is showing us not simply the history of what Christ did, mm. but um, life in Christ and... Um, yeah, so just, for example, the cross and then Christ in majesty. Yeah. Um, as we talked about last time, mm -hmm. um, they, they are all interconnected. It's interesting because you have therefore then this picture of um, Christ, who is described in the Gospels, at the center of time, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, past, 
present and future. So everything comes out of Christ. That's right. Radiates out of him, in a sense, and then points to him. Exactly. So this is the beauty of this way of reading scripture with four senses. Yes. That it makes scripture all directed to Christ without taking away its own historical reality, say in the Old Testament. Right. So it's got its literal sense, but that literal sense is pointing to Christ, and in three ways, we could say, pointing to Christ historically coming, pointing to Christ as the model of human life and of human community, and then pointing to Christ as um, the model of what we shall be in heaven. Yes, wonderful. Okay, now this can be taken too far. Uh, and so I, I love that again I just uh, I found it great when you talked about this um, why don't you talk a little bit about that and and particularly again this comes from origin I think in the Alexandrian school you say that from which right so it often happens in history that someone who is a kind of pioneer and discovers something mm. and sometimes they they see it um, it can get exaggerated Yes. And that, that's right. So he's in some way, Plato, he discovers immaterial reality. And so it could be, there could be an exaggerated version, say the ideas. Yeah. And so I think something similar happens with origin. He's the real theorist of typology. He's not the origin of it though. Sorry. No, no pun there. Um, Jesus and the prophets are the ones who are the originators of typology. Yeah. Okay. Jesus describes it. In the gospel, he uncovers typology on Easter Sunday um, at Emmaus, where he says, right, he illuminates the, um, that these, the, the books of Moses foretold what happened in his paschal mystery, in his passion, um, yeah. resurrection. So Jesus is the one who unlocks typology and yeah. transmits it to the church. But Origen was the theorist of typology. And, the, and he's great, and so I, he deserves a lot of credit. But the the danger is he wanted to see every text of scripture as having all the four senses. Um, And that would be an exaggeration. So it's not necessary that every text of scripture have a literal, um, allegorical, moral, and typological sense. It may have, and sorry, anagogical sense. It may be the case, or it may be the case that it only has um, the literal sense. So all of scripture has a literal sense, but not all of scripture has all three typological Mm. senses. It may, it it very well may, but um, we don't need to see everything. Um, In other words, we shouldn't take typology as reducing the history, but rather giving even more importance to the history by showing how profound that history is in, in prefiguring the whole of God's plan. Yeah. And, and the danger then, of course, is that it starts to look like superstition or mm-hmm. um, it goes to the point where it doesn't seem rational. It's not illuminating. Mm-hmm. You're just getting a, a, all, you know, experts who have this deep hidden knowledge and it, it leads, I'm guessing, into Gnosticism, you know, these mm-hmm. mysteries that they're reading into things and mm-hmm. uh, through their misguided imaginations. Um, and it reminds me of what I've noticed in the reestablishment, it's really part of what you're describing, um, the reestablishment of a traditional way of looking at things in the number symbolism. Now, I came across this, again, through the, the, um, the, the facet of art, if you like, through, the, through art, because there's a geometry which can govern the structures of the of tiled floors, for example, on churches. Mm-hmm. And you can interpret these as the, the, you know, an octagon linking to the eighth day, for example. Right. So that's maybe the most fundamental one. Yes. The eighth day. Yes. And, and, and octagons then can be placed into tiled floors. It's perfect for a sanctuary or for a font or a baptistry. Right. Especially the baptistry, right? So yeah. in early Christian art and, and architecture, baptistries are generally in the shape of an octagon. Hmm. And it's based simply on the typology of Genesis 1 and 2. So the days of creation. So we read about seven days of creation. Well, yeah. excuse me, six days of creation and God's rest on the seventh day. Yeah. And um, there's a beautiful parallel with um, those days of creation and 
um, Holy Week and, and the, the Triduum, right? So Jesus, the tradition is solid that Jesus was crucified on the sixth day of the week, Friday. Right? And that's significant because it was on the sixth day that man was created. And so there's a fittingness in man's recreation on the sixth day. Right? And then what happens on the seventh day? He rests in the tomb. Right? So his body rests. And it's the Christ descends to the bosom of Abraham. Yeah. But there's rest on earth. There's a beautiful reading in the um, liturgy of the hours for Holy Saturday where it speaks about this rest and Christ goes to um, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and all those who are waiting him. And then he rises on the first day of the week, which is surprising, right? We would have thought he should have risen on the Lord's day, the Sabbath, but he rises on the first day. And that is profoundly symbolic. That's the day in which God said, let there be light, the, the beginning. And so it's a new beginning. Mm. The eighth, so the tradition speaks of the eighth day as a kind of new first day. And then that becomes the Christian Lord's day or the Christian Sabbath. And so there's that. And so um, pointing out these numerical parallels mm -hmm. becomes an additional way to connect things. Just as we mm -hmm. described with the art, you put pictures mm -hmm. together. That's mm -hmm. one way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Point Noticing the, the numerical parallels and pointing mm -hmm. them out becomes another. But I, one thing that I notice is that you get this same tendency. So it's being rediscovered again, this numerical symbolism, mm -hmm. I think. And you get this, the same error occurring in that people mm -hmm. will read anything that happens three times, it's got to be the Trinity or something okay. like that. And right. it doesn't necessarily, it can just be a rhetorical device, for example. Right, right, right. right. And so we, our culture tends mostly to simply not see it at all. Yes. Uh, to be oblivious, and, but one could exaggerate as well. But it seems to me the key thing is seeing how God, so there's a beautiful typology. We think of it above all in salvation history, but in some sense we can see it in creation. So I like to speak of a typology of creation itself. Um, and that is, so for example, we've got 10 fingers. And so that gives to the number 10 a certain um, importance, right? That it, that's written into our body, and thus we can have ten commandments, and ten can be um, a significant number in in Revelation as well. But in some way, it's written into nature first, and we could say something similar about three and seven, yeah. like the seven days of the week, and and so forth. Um, and so, um, the topology of creation prepares for the typology of salvation history and so the artist why should wisely make use of that typology of creation itself yes but pointing beyond creation to the supernatural but the danger is that when you see something the decapolis <laughs> or something like this you know just something just because something happens 10 times it doesn't right necessarily connected to this we have to look at the the context and the, and and what is there we can't force it onto it it's not a cause of connection it's right. pro pro properly speaking it reflects what is already connected um, i would say right um well i i think we're finished that's been great is there anything else you wish to to say at all or any, any other points you wish to make before we close up um no i think we we uh, fulfilled our what we all started. right okay so i'm just going to um once again say i'll say thank you very much larry a mm -hmm. fascinating discussion again i want to um show you this book and recommend let me, really let me say one thing oh go on yes of course yeah so i think that discussion we just had about um typology yeah is really useful for for prayer right and so and um, when we do there's the tradition of Lectio Divina. Yes. To read scripture um, to nourish our soul, right? So to read it in a prayerful way. Mm. And so what we do, I think, in reading in that sense, reading prayerfully, what we're looking for is a certain penetration into the typology of the text. And it's first to read the history, the literal mm. sense, but then 
to see, is this pointing to Christ, if it's the Old Testament, or if it is already Christ, say I'm reading the Gospels, how is this then a model for my life and for, Christ, for what I hope for and am mm. to hope for and therefore to ask for? Um, and so that way of reading scripture is profoundly patristic and, um, and bring, serves to make scripture a living word that speaks to my moral life and to my, um, my yearning and hopes. Yes. I, I once heard a, a Benedictine um, describe how, um, through his practice of Lectio Divina, it's part of the, it's, I mean, it's part of many Christians' lives, uh -huh. but especially the Benedictine uh, community's lives. And he would say how he would notice connections that in the liturgy, in the worship, he'd mm -hmm. suddenly remember things that, that occur, mm -hmm. occurred in his reflection in mm -hmm. the Lectio. And then the Lectio, he would suddenly be reminded of the context in which the, these phrases might appear in the Psalms, for example, um, in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it, it can, you're right, it can, I hadn't thought of it quite in the way that you said, but it's, it can enrich our prayer lives and our Christian mm -hmm. lives so much to be aware of these connections, mm -hmm. I think. So that's wonderful. So, Larry, I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you for, so much for your time. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And the book is Faith Comes from What is Heard, an Introduction to Fundamental Theology by Dr. Lawrence Feingold. So, goodbye. Bye-bye. Look forward to the next time. Okay. Thanks.